Well, this morning, I want to uh, start a just a conversation with you, a series of messages, if you will, uh, called uh, the Generosity Engine. I said to you some time ago that there were, I said it quite a few times actually last year, that there were some things that God had put in my heart uh, to begin to share with you as a church, to begin to preach about. And uh, there were things that I was holding back from because uh, my concern was, are we ready for this yet? Are we really, is our, our, is our maturity level at a place that we can receive this? Are, are we at a, re- at a place that we're really ready to go deep with some um, several several wide ranging issues, and um, this particular this particular issue is one of those things. And what's prompted me to begin to share this with you over the last couple of weeks is is really what I have been seeing in the body of Christ. I think for probably the last six to nine months, this sort of building globally, if you will, in the spiritual intensity of what God is doing on the planet. And I, I think. I think we have felt that here in Durban, and, and there's just this been this growing sense of the move of God, a hunger uh, for the presence of God. God's people seem to be drawn towards Him. Uh, we seem to be moving away from some excesses in the past, and, and different character issues that have existed within the body of Christ have globally been exposed and, and out of that seems to come this, this hunger. Um, the word revival is being thrown around a lot. And there are different places on the planet where we are seeing sort of sparks, if you will, of, of revival. And I know that I have sensed and I have felt in my own heart that I, and, I, and we've been saying this for years, we believe God wants to birth a revival in the city of Durban. And uh, North Place, as one small part of God's broader move in this city, we believe that we have a role to play in that, that he will do in this city through all of the parts of the body of Christ. We don't certainly believe we're the it and the all of that. We believe we'll be a part of that. And we have sensed that for a long time from the beginning of this church. And, And I don't know about you, but for the last six to nine months, I feel like our spiritual thermostat has kind of risen and you can sense it when we come together. You can sense us moving into the presence of God and intensity towards the presence of God. And so anytime that I get a chance to travel um, and, um, and see folks, often I get in conversations, especially around what God is doing globally in the body of Christ. And maybe because I live in a different part of the world, I get asked about that, or at least my mom asked me about that. Um, and so I get into these conversations about, you know, what God is doing. And uh, I'm asked a lot because there's been some different breakouts of, of revival. Um, is this really revival? Is this really what we're seeing happen at places like Asbury and other places like that? Is this really, really revival? And I'm always, I'm always so fascinated by religious people who are very quick uh, to turn on the fire hose and to tell everybody why it's not revival. I mean... You see people getting saved, you see people repenting, you see people coming to Christ. There's no superstars on stage taking all the credit, but let's not call it revival because uh, it doesn't look like the, you know, the 90s and 2000s superstar Christianity. And so we reject it, and yet you see God doing this really authentic, beautiful thing, and what is coming out of it is humility 
and what's coming out of it is, is repentance. And so I've thought a lot about how do we know if something is authentically a move of God? And the book of Acts is the perfect e- example of that. I'm not going to go through all of that, but Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost has come, you see this powerful um, pouring out of the Spirit of God that happens. And there's the classic signs, wonders, and miracles. And unfortunately, that's where most most of us stop. Uh, and that's that's where most of us stop when we understand the outmove of the Spirit of the outbreak of the Spirit of God. But in reality, to know whether or not something is authentic revival is not just the initial event that takes place. It's it's what is the outcome, what what really starts to be produced as a result. And Acts chapter 2 doesn't end with powerful demonstrations of signs, wonders, and miracles. Instead, Acts chapter 2 actually ends with a community being birthed and transformation has taken place in a group of people that causes them to behave in a way that would not ordinarily be natural to them. In fact, the reason we have the whole New Testament is because of what happened there on the day of Pentecost and transformation that took place. See, people uh, people from initially from one race begin to experience the move of God, but it spilled over into other races. And in a highly racist environment where people were isolated from one another, all of a sudden this multiracial community began to be birthed. And this multi-social economic uh, community began to, get, be, began to be birthed. And they had to figure out how to do life together. And so you read in Acts chapter 2 that the way we, we authentically knew that it was a move of God was that these people who ordinarily wouldn't be together all of a sudden were coming together. And they were coming together because they were hungry and passionate about learning the truth. They stopped chasing nonsense and they started trace, chasing news. So truth. So we knew it was real revival because there was diversity and people being brought together through transformation that caused them to look past their differences and find commonality. And that commonality was that they that they wanted to know the truth. They weren't going to chase nonsense. And they passionately pursued the truth. And then you see what happens is all of a sudden this radical transformation that took place in them. Uh, began to look like uh, just this almost ridiculous generosity. The Bible says that they sold everything they had and they started to share everything in common. So you had rich people, poor people, people from different races, people who ordinarily wouldn't do life together, are all of a sudden sharing everything, sharing everything so they can sustain the community. The cost of sustaining the community was radical generosity. The way to sustain a move of God, the way to sustain a move of God, the way that we really know it's a move of God and that it will be sustained is when there is radical, costly, radical generosity. I know it's revival when the generosity engine begins to churn. I know it's really God at work because the generosity engine begins to churn. That's how we knew in the book of Acts. In fact, I believe, and I don't have time this morning to do it, but we'll do it over the next few weeks. I believe we can see throughout scripture every time God began to do something among his people, 
the generosity engine began to churn. And you may ask yourself the question, how is generosity and revival connected to one another? Here's how. Because generosity always, always demonstrates radical transformation. The generosity engine at, in your, at work in your life and my life is a direct demonstration of the work of the Holy Spirit, God transforming you and I to be different than what our flesh would ordinarily be. Those people in the book of Acts started radically behaving in ways that were different to the way their flesh would, do, would be, and they started behaving like God. And we see that at work in people's lives. People start to look like God. How do, how do I know people look like God? People look like God when the generosity engine is churning in their life. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about what that looks like and what that means and what it produces in our life. And you may say, Randy, what does that have to do with revival? Don't you know we're experiencing these wonderful, powerful moves of God? We're experiencing God's presence. Wonderful. It's incredible. But you know what an engine does? An engine takes explosions and it harnesses that power to create forward movement. Let me say that again. Do you understand what an engine does? An engine takes explosions and it harnesses that power to create forward movement. If you study the history of the church, if you study the history of revival, what you find out was when the generosity engine wasn't engaged, what was meant to be a move of God that would bring about great sustainable change instead turned into flash-in-the-pan moments that meant nothing. I've grown up in church my entire life. My parents... My parents became Christians when I was a child. In fact, just a few days after I was born, not long after I was born, my dad gave his life to Jesus. And, and so I grew up in church. I grew up in a very Pentecostal church, a very revivalist church. We would have two revivals a year. I grew up seeing incredible power demonstrations of God's presence. I've seen all kinds of literal miracles in front of my face. I was privileged to grow up in that environment. It was awesome. It was incredible. But I will also tell you, there were so many times where year on top of year on top of year, I wondered what was the value and the worth of it all because we would have these powerful moments that seemed to be demonstrations of God's presence. And yet the guy who I knew was an alcoholic who took his liquor bottle down to, to the altar. All of a sudden, six months later, I saw him walking down the street with the same liquor bottle in his back pocket. And I saw that pattern repeated over and over and over again in my life. The couple who was having marriage problems and they would come down to the altar and they would cry and they would cry because he was cheating on her. I saw it happen. And everybody would pray and shout and dance. I mean, like church got wild back then, guys. Six months later, they would be divorced. I'd see people lay down on the floor. Power of God hit them. Two weeks later, being a complete jerk to a waitress in a, in a restaurant. 
And growing up in that environment, I, I, I begin to question, is, is revival sustainable? Is this real? How do I know if it's real? What I began to understand was that I know it's real. I know it's real when that power that God pours out is harnessed to move in a productive direction. It's not just an explosion. It's an explosion that is focused towards transformation. The generosity engine really is that focusing process that refines the fire of God in our life and that causes you and I to move in a direction that reflects his image, his character, and his nature. Revival has everything to do with a generosity engine. The practice of biblical generosity is like an engine that harnesses the resources of our lives and aligns them with the heart of God, producing power, sustainability, and effectiveness. The practice of biblical generosity is like an engine that harnesses the resources of our lives and aligns them. It aligns them with the heart of God, producing power, sustainability, and effectiveness. Now you may say, I don't understand, Pastor, why, why were you saying six months ago um, that God had put some things on your heart and you weren't sure we were ready for it? Well, I'll go ahead and answer that, that question right now. How many of you, um, when I said, I'm going to start talking about generosity, how many of you thought, here we go, he's going to start talking about money? Let me see your hand. Come on. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the church um, has done a really, a really poor job dealing with the issue of, of generosity. And uh, it's, it's difficult, it's difficult to talk about generosity without, without talking about money. Um, anyone remember Jesus making a comment in Matthew chapter 6 that where your treasure is, your heart is also? So I can, you know, I can tell you where your treasure is. I mean, I can tell you where your heart is. All I have to do is to look at your bank account, look at your ledger. I, I don't want to look at your bank account, but um, if you reveal where you spend your money, that's where you know your heart is. Some of you, your heart belongs to Standard Bank. I know that. Right? So Jesus, Jesus made radical comments like that. Um, Jesus talked about Jesus talked about money a lot, and um, and so that's why it makes it unavoidable for us when we talk about generosity to talk about money. But but the truth is, generosity is so much more than money. Generosity so it's so much more uh, than money. In fact, the more we understand generosity, the more that we understand. Uh, how generosity is so much more than money. There's a lot of us who pretend to be generous because we have an abundance of money and uh, we can give it away without it hurting us too much. And so we hide behind our wealth or we hide behind debt. So we pretend to be wealthy. We hide behind debt and we pretend to be generous, but we're, we're not really generous because what becomes sacrifice in our life, we're unwilling to give away. So maybe we give away money, but we don't give away time. 
maybe we give away time, but we don't give away energy. The most expensive thing in your life is your energy. And uh, some of us, some of us um, have, a, have a very, we're very, very selfish when it, when it comes to our, our energy. Uh, some of us are very, very selfish when it relates to our emotions. I could go on and on and on. The, the, the truth is, when we talk about generosity, we're talking about far more than money. Although scripture, Jesus in particular, seems to use money as an illustration of describing for us what generosity looks like in our life. I wanted us to, I wasn't through, I had to leave, I had to go on a trip, so I wasn't through with 2 Corinthians yet, so we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians today, because uh, you know I wasn't over it yet. Uh, so we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at 2 Corinthians, you remember just a couple of weeks ago we were talking about 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at a long passage from 2 Corinthians um, to look at the generosity engine. And, and how it works in our life. I'm going to read quite a few verses of scripture. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I'm going to pause for a second. Do you see the, the opposite, the nonsensical, the radical generosity that exists? It's upside down. Everything about the kingdom of God is upside down. How do I know God is moving? I know God is moving when my behavior is inconsistent with what my flesh nature would ordinarily choose. These people were completely impoverished and yet, they were overflowing with wealth of generosity. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he had started so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that you love also that your love also is genuine for you know that you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you may by so that you by his poverty might become rich and in this manner i give my judgment this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your faith, so that your readiness is desiring, and it may be matched by your completing it out what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased by your burden, 
but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. Like I said, I, I don't ordinarily read that long of a passage of Scripture to you, but I wanted to read it because it is just so loaded with these paradoxical statements. These statements that seem to be the opposite of one another. Now you remember, we learned this because we went deep into 2 Corinthians, that Paul is writing this very hard pastoral letter to a church that he had planted that now was rejecting his leadership. He was hurt, he was wounded, and instead of acting out of his hurt and instead of acting out of his wound, he wrote this very fatherly, loving letter to them. Now, he didn't let them off the hook. He acknowledged that there were some struggles. And so, really, the main purpose of the book of 2 Corinthians is Paul dealing with this personal issue and getting them ready because he's going to come back and uh, be with them, or he wants to come back and be with them. But in the middle of writing this letter, he uses an occasion to deal with another issue. These people had made a faith promise to help with the saints of Jerusalem who were, who were completely caught in a crisis situation. And they had, they had promised, the church at Corinth had promised that they were going to send an offering to help those people. And they had not done it. They had not followed through on their commitment. And so Paul... Um, while he's writing and dealing with this issue in 2 Corinthians, he takes a chance to remind them of their, of their commitment that they had made to respond. And when they made that commitment, their hearts said, I want to do something about this. I hear about the church being planted in Sudan. I want to do something about this. I, I hear about RFK camp. I want to do something about this, right? Are you with me? We all we have those situations. We hear about a need, we want to respond. So Paul is writing this letter to them. He loves these people. He cares about them. It's already a difficult conversation. And, and he stops and he says, but I need to address what's going on with the generosity engine in your life. Because the generosity engine in your life is sputtering. And it's an indication that, that all these spiritual issues that we're having in Corinth, the black smoke coming out of your generosity engine is just another indicator of the spiritual disruption and the lack of the sustainability of revival in Corinth. Remember, these were spiritual people. These were people who'd seen signs and wonders and miracles. There were all kinds of people in this church. It was very diverse. They were fighting. They had trouble. Now they were rejecting spiritual authority. They didn't want to receive from Paul. They were following false teachers who said, ooh, give us an offering and we'll give you a bless you rag and spray doom on you. All kinds of nonsense was going on. And they were being abused. They were being taken advantage of. And they were chasing all of these false teachers because it was easier to face false to chase false teachers who would give them a little bit of truth and then tie in with their flesh and tickle their ears. It was easier to do that than it was to be disciplined and to really follow Jesus. And Paul says, hey, hey guys, another way that we can see very clearly that there's an issue here is in the area of generosity in your life. And um, 
And so we're going we're gonna to address that. And Paul takes them through this whole conversation, again, that seems paradoxical because it's incredibly spiritual. They were being abused by false teachers who would come and provoke a lot of emotions out of them and make false promises and twist God's word and abuse God's word to milk them for money. And here Paul is, the true apostle, the authentic leader in their life, the one who's never taken a dime from them. Anytime he's come to town, he's been a tent builder, he's made his own way. They're not wanting to support his ministry. They're certainly not wanting to support the work that he's doing to bring help and relief to other people. Instead, they're using their money on all of this other nonsense. And Paul says, hey, we've got we've to address this. Because what's going on with your generosity is indicative of what's going on with your spirituality. What's going on with your generosity is indicative of what's going on with your spirituality. Jesus, Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. The measuring stick, the measuring stick of your spirituality is how generous you are. What do you do with your resources? What do you do with what you have? Here's the first thing we learn from what Paul teaches the church at Corinth. Biblical generosity is the opposite of what comes natural to us in our flesh. What comes natural to us in our flesh is to reserve, is to preserve. Desert and I were talking about, uh, we were talking about this yesterday. What happens to you naturally when you skip a meal, what does your body immediately begin to do? Your body immediately goes into a hyperprotective mode and it starts to create fat out of what foods you do have because your body physiologically is thinking, I've got to protect myself. So you get fat. It's okay, just laugh, it's all right. We all have our summer bodies now, it's good. But that's what happens physiologically, right? You go into protective mode. That's what our flesh naturally does. Economy turns down, load shedding, fuel prices go up. Our natural reaction to these things is to clamp down, isn't it? Right, let's be just real, right? The natural response when I get busy is to start looking at my calendar and saying, oh my goodness, where can I clamp down? Right? We start to conserve. We start to protect. That is our natural response. Biblical generosity from Genesis to Revelation is the opposite of that. Generosity in our life looks like we do the opposite of what comes natural to us. Paul says to them, he says to the church at Corinth, listen, but God has given us a grace, this grace called generosity, and it looks different than your natural response. And he uses the Macedonians as an example. And when he uses the Macedonians as an example, he says these people were in abject poverty, and yet they gave. Not only did they give, they begged for the opportunity to give. 
Here's what I understand. When someone has been transformed by the Spirit of God, when someone has the Spirit of God at work in their life, they're walking in the Spirit, and therefore they're responding to their circumstances and their situations, not out of their flesh, they're walking out of their spirit, and they become more generous, not more stingy. The harder things get, the more generous they become. The more difficult things get, the easier they find to give to serve and to lead other people. They start to act the opposite of what comes natural to them. One of the things that I look for in people's life and I look for in my own life is specifically in this area of generosity when the pressure's on, when things get difficult, do I conserve or do I expand? Do I give or do I keep? Do I live with a closed hand or do I open hand? What I've learned in my life is that the more difficult things get, the harder things get, the more pressure I'm under, the more I need to open my hand, the more I need to open my heart, the more I need to open my life, the more I need to slow down, not speed up, the more I need to relax, not clench. I need to do the opposite of what comes natural to me because what will come natural to me is to isolate, to protect, to guard. And here's the reason that we do that. We isolate, we protect, and we guard because we're trying to conserve what we have because we think what we have is limited. We measure our resources from our source, and our source is our self, and our self is, our self is affected by our circumstances. But for a person who is in the kingdom of God, they're not measuring their resources by their self. They're measuring their resources by their God who is omnipotent, who is outside of our circumstances, who is beyond our circumstances. And because he is outside of our circumstances, because he is outside of time and space and the world bank, because he doesn't exist in those places, he's not confined by those places. What I've found through the course of my life is that I, I will accept and lean into the fact that I serve a God who is bigger and greater and beyond. If I don't do what comes natural to my flesh, I instead, I instead begin to churn out a life. I begin to churn out a life that reflects God. And it can be seen. It can be seen in how generous or how stingy I am. Paul says, listen, I want to make it very clear to you. Generosity is not measured by the gift, but by the sacrifice. You know what I've found? I'll share this with you, but it's just an interesting thing that I've found. I have found that people who struggle with generosity have a tendency to measure the sacrifice of others disproportionately low to the level of sacrifice that they make themselves. Let me say that a little bit differently. What I have found is that people who have a poverty mindset, people who are not generous, have a tendency that when I'm generous with them, their mind immediately says, he's generous with me because he has so much extra. Oh, he didn't have to sacrifice very much to give me that because he has so much extra. 
But when they give something, when they sacrifice something, oh, it's coming from, oh, just a place of lack in their life. Can I let you in on something? You have no idea what it costs the other person. You have no idea. Oh, I know, they're rich. They have so much money. I guarantee you this. Every yes, every yes is no to something else. If you have a million dollars, if you have a million rands, if you have a million pounds, every yes to one thing is no to something else. If you have 10 rands, if you have $10, if you have 10 pounds, every yes to one thing is no to something else. It is not up to you and me to measure the level of sacrifice that somebody else makes. But see, here's the thing. When my heart isn't generous, I minimize your sacrifice and I maximize my sacrifice. I measure your generosity I measure your generosity by my heart, not by yours. I measure my generosity by the fact that I know good and well. I know good and well I would only give out of my abundance, so I would never assume that you would give out of your poverty. Ooh, I'm getting low on that one. Let me hit. Some of us are so stingy. We're so broken, we're so protective, we're so insecure that we would never give out of our poverty so we never believe that anybody else is giving out of theirs. And the problem with that is if you read 2 Corinthians, the Bible says, the Bible, the Bible says that Jesus made himself poor so that you could be rich. Mm. All the garbage, nonsense, prosperity gospel stuff just takes and ignores the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. It ignores the fact that he made himself lowly, that he embraced poverty, that he was born in a dung-filled manger so that he could become low, so that you and I could be lifted up. He embraced that place of poverty because it's out of that place of poverty that he demonstrated the character and nature of God, which is generous. What I have found is that the greatest demonstrations of the heart of God were not found in my wealth. They're found in my poverty. They're found in those places where I make sacrifices that no one else can make and that no one else understands. Your generosity isn't measured when you have everything to give. Your generosity is measured by how your heart responds when you have nothing to offer. The Macedonians had nothing to offer and they begged, please, please let me pay more. Please let us give more. Give us the pleasure and the honor to serve. Generosity engine was churning in Macedonia and that's why they were experiencing revival. That's why the move of God was sustainable among those people. The generosity engine in Corinth had seized shut. And that's why the church was breaking down. 
see when the Spirit of God is really at work, transformation takes place. And transformation taking place means that people are changing. The first gift the church in Macedonia gave was this. See, this is how a lot of us don't understand generosity. Because we've been taught garbage and nonsense. Jesus has been turned into Santa Claus. We've been told if we just give a little, it's like playing the, the Holy Spirit blackjack. Maybe we get something out. We've, tur- we've turned it into garbage. And Corinthians says this, the first gift that they gave, the first thing that they did, their first generosity was responding to the Father's generosity. They first gave themselves to God. People have asked me, Pastor Andy, why don't, you know, why don't we do more pre- why don't we do more pressure around here for the offering? Why don't we say more or we do more? My first priority is for you to give yourself to God. Here's what I know, because I'm playing the long game here, and because I love you, because I care about you, here's what I know. I know if you give yourself to God, I won't have to beg you to give. You'll beg me for more opportunities to give. I know it's true. I absolutely know it's true. How do I know it's true? It's true because in Macedonia, where there was a real move of God, the people were begging for an opportunity to give because they first gave themselves to God. If I can pastor you, if I can love you, if I can shepherd you well and cause you to fall in love with God, if I can convince you to give yourself to Him, your time, your talent, and your treasure, that'll be easy. We won't have to beg you to serve. Every slot for kids' church will be filled every week. Not because we're begging you to, but because you first gave yourself to God. Every slot to serve and every every area of service around this church will be filled every week. Our budget won't come up red. It'll come up in the black every month when this church really has revival. Not because I'm up here yelling and screaming and begging you to give and behaving like those false teachers in Corinth were behaving, manipulating, not because of that garbage. This church will have more than enough and we'll be able to serve our city. Why? Because we first gave ourselves to God. Once we give ourselves to God, the rest is overflow. The generosity engine begins to churn in our life. Revival is real. It's not a flash in the pan. It's not an explosion where the power is dispersed and goes into the air and nothing happens. Instead, it is Jesus building his church. And that church is living and functioning in such a way that the gates of hell do not prevail against her. Because for the last two or three decades, the church has not been prevailing against the gates of hell. The gates of hell have been prevailing against the church. We've been her whipping boy. We've been embarrassed. We've been humiliated. We've been lifeless and powerless. Why? Because the engine isn't churning. From a place of surrender to God, the motive and direction of every gift is aligned. When the motivation engine is really at work in my life, my motive, my motive, the reason I give, where I give, it's aligned. I'm not giving to get, I'm giving because he has given to me. 
I'm not giving to get. I'm not giving so that someone will pat me on the back or someone will acknowledge. I'm giving because, get this, the Bible says that they gave first to God and then out of God's will, they gave towards the needs that were presented to them. See, here's what I understand. If you will first give yourself to God, God will then give you direction in how you spend yourself. How you spend your time and your talent and your treasure. The explosion of your life, the value of the power of your life won't just be spent and dispersed into the air. Instead, it will be aligned to be used for the sake of his kingdom. I love this. and Paul was talking about this idea of giving. He was talking about generosity. He says this, he says, For if readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs, so their abundance may supply your need. There may be fairness. This is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and who had gathered little had no lack. I've been told all my life, well, Randy, don't worry about it. It's the thought that counts. You ever been taught that? You ever been told that? You try really hard, and it turns out to be terrible. You give somebody a gift, and it's not what they really wanted, or it breaks. Ever buy somebody something, they open it, and it breaks? Well, it's the thought that counts. We live in a world, I, I've been shocked by it. We've been, we've been, we've been convinced. Uh, we've been convinced that if, you know, you just give it a good try, that's all that really matters. You know what? Maybe not. Maybe it's not enough to just try. Well, I, I thought about it. The church of Corinth thought about it a year ago. And in that year, people were starving to death in Jerusalem. Some of us walk away from opportunities to be generous. Some of us walk away from opportunities to respond to the call of God. And we pat ourselves on the back because we thought about it. I, I thought about fasting and praying. I thought about doing my daily 20. You know what? Can I just speak to you as mature people? It's not enough to just think about it. We got to get, we got to grow up. We got to stop treating ourselves like children and patting ourselves on the head and, oh, oh, you're, tr oh, you thought about it. That's so sweet. Good for you. And Paul says, listen, I, I love you. I respect you. People say nothing but good things about you. But we got a problem. It's been a year. It's been a year. Some of, you've been talking about this for a long time. You've been talking about getting a prayer life for a long time. You've been talking about doing your daily 20. For, you've been talking about tithing for a long time. It's time to start tithing. You've been talking about serving in RFK for a long time. It's time to, it's time to show up. I mean, Paul, whew. the idea that just thinking about it is enough, it's an immature idea. It's not the thought that counts. It's the maturity to walk out grace 
that produces effectiveness in our lives that counts. And I love that. I love Paul's language because he says that he says that generosity is a grace. In other words, it's spiritual. It's something that the Lord does in us. One of our highest values here at North Place is generosity. From the moment this church began in the living room of my house, we have modeled, insisted on, and demonstrated generosity. Every Sunday that you come in this building, you are the benefactor of generosity. We do that because it is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We do that because it reflects the character and the nature of God. We do that because that is God's bent towards us. We do that because 2 Corinthians teaches us that it is out of the generosity of God that any of us are here. That God, in our deserving nothing, loved us and gave to us what none of us could ever get on our own. Generosity is the gospel. We are spiritual when we are generous. And we are unspiritual. We are fleshly when we are selfish. Revival. Revival means transformation. Transformation means sustainable change. Everyone say sustainable. I know that's not one of those words the preacher would ordinarily have you say, but we're going we're gonna to do it again. Everyone say sustainable, sustainable change. That's what transformation is. I grew up in revival. People would come down. I don't know if I can do this. And they'd come. People would come down the altar. They would fall down. They would yell and scream. And then they would go back to their lives and it'd still be a train wreck. Moments of transformational transformation or transformational moments but not sustainable change it was not revival what good does it do for a dead thing to come back to life if we just roll it over and put it back in the grave what good does it do for a dead thing to come back to life if we just roll it over and put it back in the grave revival meaning dead things are coming back to life, is an issue of transformation. For transformation to really be transformation, it means that whatever change has happened must be sustained. This is so good. For the change that the Lord is doing in us in this moment, to be sustained, the generosity engine must be operating in our lives. The way we treat our time, our talent, our treasure, our energy can't just be wasted explosions. We can't measure other people's based on our dysfunction. Instead, instead, allow the Holy Spirit to harness His power in our life to produce movement 
toward the people he's called us to be.